I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we will consider together the passage that Pastor Dan mentioned in the uh, children's story, Acts chapter 20. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the pew, you'll in the seats there, you'll find today's text on page 588, 588 of the black Bibles that are provided. The large numbers are the chapter numbers. And the smaller numbers within each are the verses. And we're going to be considering Acts chapter 20. That's the large number beginning in verse 17. We're going to read a portion of this together. And then we're going to ask for God's help. And as we do here at North Hills, we will march through the text verse by verse. I would encourage you to leave your Bible open in your lap so that you can refer to it. We will look back at it often uh, as we remind ourselves we have nothing to say. Um, We only have God's Word to expound, and so that's what we'll attempt to do this morning. Acts 20, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. From Miletus he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Father, help us in these moments that we have together. May we understand your word. May we apply it to our hearts and lives. And may your spirit be the preacher of the hour. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Dudley Ting was an Episcopal preacher that lived and preached in the mid-1800s. He was an an inspiration to many, many people uh, through his preaching and through his life. Ting and others would daily preach meetings at the YMCA. You've heard of the YMCA? Yeah, That's now just the Y for short. Uh, That used to stand for Young Men's Christian Association. It was actually a gathering place. The the entire purpose of the founding of the YMCA was for the purpose of evangelizing and discipling. Well, Ting would have regular meetings there during the lunch hour, and young men would gather. In fact, thousands began to gather on a daily basis in the city of Philadelphia. It was known as the Work of God in Philadelphia. In March of 1858, Ting preached a rousing sermon to 5,000 young men. 
a thousand made professions of faith and decided to follow after Christ. This was a wonderful event. It was momentous. But just a few days after this tremendous outpouring of the work of God, he was, he was in his study. He was preparing, and he decided that he wanted to go for a walk to get some fresh air. So he made his way out, to the, out on his farm there where there were some men nearby working. Uh, they, were, they had a mule that was hooked up to a machine that was processing corn. And so it was a mule-powered machine. He reached out to, to pat the mule, and the sleeve of his garment got caught in the cogs of the machinery and, and actually tore his arm from his body. Well, in those days, a dramatic injury like that was often lethal. And so it was for Dudley Ting. As he lay on his deathbed, slowly life ebbing away, many of the young men who had been inspired by his preaching and, and some of his, his, his peers who were good friends of his gathered around his bedside to encourage him and to hear from him as he lay there on his deathbed. Ting began to challenge the young men. He challenged them to be courageous, to go on for Christ. And while he was giving this challenge, a man stood nearby that was good friends with Dudley Ting. His name was George Duffield. And Duffield listened on as Ting reminded these men of the importance of being firm for Christ. He said, men, I challenge you, let us all stand up. Let us stand up for Jesus. These words so impacted Duffield that he was inspired to write the hymn that we wrote, uh, that we sang at the beginning of our service. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. A similar scene unfolds in the life of Paul, and it is before us in the text today in Acts 20. Paul has gathered around him men who have been inspired and taught by his preaching. The young men whom he had trained in Ephesus are hearing the parting words of a champion of the faith that they will not see again. And so we see in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, the introduction to, to a sermon, to a challenge that is given by the Apostle Paul. Notice verse 17 with me. From Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Paul is, you remember the context, if you've been with us on our journey through Acts, Paul is at the close of his third and final missionary journey. He is on his way back to Jerusalem. It has been over a decade since he has been to Jerusalem. He's in a hurry to make it back in time for Pentecost. But he makes a stop there, the ship that he's on makes a stop in Miletus. The cargo is being uh, unloaded, new cargo is being put on the ship. And so Paul has some time there in Miletus and he sends a messenger over to Ephesus where you remember he ministered some time ago to call the pastoral leadership, to call the elders of the church. Now the reason for this is twofold. First of all, just a kind of a practical reason, Miletus is about a day or so journey from, from Ephesus. So logistically, it was a good time to gather with these men that he hadn't seen in a little while. 
But perhaps the more important reason is that Paul knew he would likely never see them again. Notice it with me in verse 18. When they had come to him, he said, verse 22, I'm skipping down now. I'm just kind of giving you a few highlights. Uh, Verse 22, I, I go bound in the spirit. I must go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying chains and tribulations await me. So I'm going to Jerusalem. I know there is hostility awaiting me in Jerusalem. The Spirit has has given me this message that there is opposition coming. So I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, he says, but I know know I'm going to be bound. I know I'm going to be enchained. I know I'm going to be incarcerated. Go down a little bit further, verse 37. At the close of his message, they, that is these men that he's speaking to, wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. So so they gather together knowing that these are Paul's parting words. This is the last time he's going to have to challenge them. And so his words carry tremendous weight. Remember that Paul spent two years training leaders in the city of Ephesus. Remember that Ephesus became kind of a a seminary from which the gospel went out, and the Bible says what? That all of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what was happening there in Ephesus. And so the group that Paul is pulling together are likely some of his own spiritual children. They're ones whom, whom he has led to Christ. They're members of his church that he planted. And to borrow kind of a modern idea, they are his seminary students. They are the young men that he has trained for ministry. What we learn in this passage this morning is that your ministry can be effective as it continues in others whom you have impacted. Let me say that again. Your ministry can be effective as it continues in others whom you have impacted. I mean, that's what Paul is doing here. Paul knows that he is soon passing off the scene, that he is handing off the baton to those that are behind him that will continue the ministry. And Paul knows that he's going to have a continued effective ministry in Asia Minor because of those who are following along after him. And in fact, you and I can have that same kind of ministry, a ministry that continues, that continues to have have effect because of those that we ourselves impact. So what are the lessons about ministry that are so important that we have an inspired record of, of the greatest missionaries parting words? What can you and I learn from the apostle Paul himself about how to have an effective ministry? I think the first thing that we observe in verses 18 through 26 is that you and I can have effective ministry by exemplary character. When we have the kind of character that that resembles Christ, when we have Christ-like character, that itself has an impact on others. And this is what Paul appeals to, beginning in verse 18. Watch it with me if you would. Verse 18, when they had come, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. Paul cites the fact that you know me. You saw how I lived. 
from the very first moment that I got here, you have observed my life. And Paul is actually using that as something to leverage to tell them how to conduct their ministry. Go down with me a little bit further in verse 26. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Paul has given a testimony. It's been lived out in his life, and he appeals to this to teach these men, to inspire these men to go on for Christ. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to have a a Christ-like character that provides an example to others? Well, he tells us in verse 19 that it is characterized by humility, right? Verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility. There's no place in Christian ministry for self-aggrandizement. The ministry is not about me. It's not about you. It is about Christ, And so that transfers over our entire ministry to other people, a humility, a recognition that what I am doing is just merely a function of God's good grace living through me. And so Paul expresses that his ministry was characterized by humility. Christ-like character exhibits that kind of humility, but it also endures in the face of hardship. So go on in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. And then what does it say? With many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. We have this notion in Western society that serving the Lord is supposed to be easy. That when things get difficult, something must be wrong. But the tenor of Scripture is very consistent that that serving Christ is not always easy. It is not always the easy path. Paul was supremely committed to ministry. In fact, he's so committed, his commitment was so profound that he was actually willing to put himself at great personal risk to carry out ministry to others. This is how he says it in verse 22. Now I go bound in the spirit of Jerusalem. In other words, in the spirit to Jerusalem. What, what, he, what he means here is, I, I got to do this, guys, right? I've got to go. I, I just, I mean, he's not being made to go. He's not captive at this point, but he's saying, I'm bound in the spirit. I, I know that this is the right thing to do. This is the right course of ministry. I am going to Jerusalem. I've got to go. Not knowing the things that will happen to me except, what, chains, and tribulations await me. So watch how he watch how he concludes in verse 24. He basically says, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. All I want to do, as Pastor Dan was talking about earlier, all I want to do is finish the race with joy. I, I want to I want to continue forward. I want to do what God has called me to do. And the fact that my life is in peril, the fact that danger lies ahead is inconsequential. I'm not going to let a little thing like death stand in my way. (laughs) I'm not going to let some minor inconvenience like being thrown in jail and scourged with a whip stop me. I want to live for Christ. I want to minister to others. This is resolve. This is commitment. A young man who was madly in love wrote these words to the love of his life. My dearest, 
I would go anywhere for you. I would do anything for you. I would climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest rivers, cross the burning desert just to get to you. All my love, John. P.S. I'll come see you Saturday if it's not raining. The firm of McKim, Mead, and White designed the New York General Post Office. It opened on Labor Day in 1914. One of the firm's architects' name was William Mitchell Kendall. Um, Kendall was the son of a classics scholar and was well-read in the Greek classics. And so he had read of the Persian Wars. So while they were designing the the post office that would be erected there in, uh, in New York City, his mind went to this occasion of the battle between the Greeks and the Persians. During that time, the Persians operated a system of postal carriers who rode on horseback, who served with great strength. And fidelity. And so this architect, Kendall, chose a selection from the translation of the Persian Wars by Herodotus to be chiseled in the gray granite over the entrance to the New York City Post Office on 8th Street. You know the words. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night shall stay these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Resolve. We will do the job. We will not be stopped. We will not be impeded. Nothing will stand in our way. This is the attitude of of a man like Paul who made an impact on others. I'm just going to say it bluntly. Modern American Christians are weak. <laughs> we're weak. We're, we're, we're flimsy. We're wimpy. We, we too often get waylaid by hardship. You know, faithful service for Christ requires commitment. If we only do what is done easily, nothing great will ever be done. Far too often, Christians especially in our comfortable Western society, are timid in their commitment, easily distracted, easily discouraged, quick to to give up. How quick are you and I to throw in the towel when things get difficult? Do do you and I have the resolve to stay the course and, and not let hardship deter us? Maybe people like Paul who endure hardship, uh, may may we be like Paul, uh, who endured hardship, knowing that the reward of faithful ministry is greater than any difficulty we face. What else does Paul's character look like that he appeals to as he reminds them of his own example? Well, verse 20 reminds us that Christ-like character exemplifies daily discipleship. Notice in verse 20 he says, I kept back nothing that was helpful to you, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. 
Verse 21, he says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not preaching just the comfortable truths. He says, I kept back nothing from you. I taught you everything that you needed to know. I was faithful to declare the truths that you needed to hear. This was not some sort of a, an easy believism uh, where Paul was just preaching the fun truths, the, the easy things, the, the delightful things. No, Paul was giving them all that they needed to learn. He was instructing them carefully. As he taught these young pastors, his teaching was thorough. Now, he did this how? He did it in a couple ways. He did it publicly, right? He said, publicly, I did this, and, and privately from house to house. And he also did it faithful to the gospel, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching a gospel that changed lives. He was not just using nebulous terms about, you know, kind of turning to Jesus and, and believing in Jesus. He would let them know that, that repentance was involved, turning to Christ from sin, a gospel that changes lives. And he did it faithfully, privately, publicly, day by day, by his own example. I'm reminded of Moses' words to the children of Israel. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. But he, it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. The, the challenge to God's people is that we are teaching those behind us. Specifically, this is talking about our children. What a responsibility for parents. I mean, does this characterize us as parents? What a, what a convicting question. Do, do you and I talk about God's truth on a regular, ongoing basis when we're rising up, when we're sitting down, when we're walking by, just our day-to-day -day course of life? Are we teaching our children in this way? That's what Paul appeals to. Day in, day out, hardship or easy, privately, publicly, I, I just kept teaching you. I just kept pouring into you God's word. May we be people like that. We, we were thinking of Moses' appeal to parents. How do you and I as parents do that? Are we faithfully teaching our children gospel truths day in and day out? And whether it's your own children that live in your home or whether it's others who come along behind you, is your life one big teaching ministry? One big opportunity to pour into those who are coming along behind you. Just like Paul, our teaching ministry is effective when we're doing it day in, day out, when it is overlaid with a pattern of life. In other words, we are not, we are not just telling, but we are also showing. We are demonstrating, we are living out what we are teaching day by day. And so it is important for us to show, not just tell. But telling is important also. And this is what Paul turns his attention to in verse 27. We'll back up to verse 26 just for a context, but we learn from verse 27 that you and I can have an effective ministry by diligently teaching the Word. So verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. How, do I, how does Paul get to that point? 
How does he know that he is innocent of the blood of all men? Verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We already saw it in verse 20. I've not kept back anything that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly from house to house. It is important that our life is characterized by teaching the truth of God. This is true in a life individually, and it's true as a church ministry. And so we make no uh, secret about the fact that we put a premium here at North Hills on faithful preaching of the Word. The ongoing exposition, the unfolding of the Word of God. It's a centerpiece of our ministry, and any biblical ministry must have the teaching, the preaching of God's Word as its centerpiece, as, as the most important thing. Look at the way this platform is arranged. Look at the way this room is arranged. You say, well, that's just tradition. Actually, it's a tradition that's informed by philosophy. What is not at the center here? Well, you go into some more liturgical churches and you will find that liturgy is literally the centerpiece of worship. What is the centerpiece of worship here? It's the pulpit. And it's not because of who's standing behind it. It is because this is where the word of God is opened. That, that, that worship, it is imperative in worship that God's word is given out to his people. This is a philosophy of preaching that is tremendously important, not just for a preacher to believe in, but for every member of that congregation to believe in. You see, I can, I can believe in preaching all day long. I can say it's important all day long, but until, until the congregation believes it is important... It's not really important. And so, in fact, the congregation must insist on accurate, faithful, regular preaching of the text of Scripture. Not just a call for preachers. It's a call for anyone in ministry. It's a call for the church at large. Now, I want us to notice something here. Um, the, the ancient Greek philosophers taught that there were three avenues of persuasion. Have you heard this before? Ethos, or ethos, logos, and pathos. You heard of this? All right, the three avenues of persuasion that the, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers taught. Ethos, ethos, is the appeal that comes from the speaker or writer's own credibility or character. It's, it's the word, it's the Greek word from which we get our word ethics or ethical. And that ethos is that power of persuasion because the speaker or the writer is, uh, is, uh, has a character, has a credibility that holds weight. If someone is persuaded by ethos, they might say something like, I believe that because I believe in him or I believe in her. Right? That's, that's ethos. There's another method of persuasion that we mentioned, and it's logos. Right? This is the word, word in Greek. Logos is the persuasion that is rooted in words. 
It is persuasion based on history, based on logical arguments, based on appeal to authority. This is, this is logos. If someone is persuaded by logos, they might say, that makes perfect sense. I see that argument. Pathos, it's the word, the Greek word from which we get our word empathy or empathetic and also the word pathetic. <laughs> Pathos has, has the idea of, of the heart of something, that which stirs the emotions, that which moves one in his inner spirit. And so uh, someone persuaded by pathos might say, I'm inspired to do something, things such as sympathy or anger. These are the three avenues that the Greeks appealed to when they talk about persuasion. Well, here's what's interesting. You will notice that Paul cites all three of these in his ministry. He cites his own character, verses 18 through 26. And then he turns to his preaching of the word. Now, it's not merely just a logos anymore. It is the logos, the inspired word of God in verse 27. And he also notes that this is not a sterile, lifeless teaching. It is one that is impassioned. Notice with me verse 21. The word that appears first in our English Bible, testifying, is actually a compound word, and it is intensified in the original language. This, it, it conveys a deep burden. He is testifying earnestly, might be the way that we would say it best in English. He's testifying the gospel, repentance towards God, faith to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's doing so not just in a sterile, dry way, but he's doing it with pathos, with drive. In verse 19, he says, with many tears and trials which happened to me. His teaching ministry was in the context even of hardship, even of difficulty, even of tears. And so this combination of ethos, logos, and pathos all means of persuasion, but all important, are woven into Paul's ministry. And by the way, this combination of these three really is why I reject the idea, uh, um, the model of church where a gifted preacher is piped in. You know what I'm talking about? Like everybody gathers, they do their singing, lights go down, screen pops up, big name celebrity preacher comes up on the screen. That's not pastoral preaching. Um, certainly, your pastor, your pastors are flawed. We're weak. And our preaching isn't even all that great. You could get online right now and hear dozens of better sermons than what you're hearing this morning. But may I just say that pastoring truly Shepherding a flock is not just the practice of giving a mesmerizing sermon. It is living amongst the congregation in such a way as to understand their needs, to see their hurts, to hear their questions. In such a circumstance, preaching is, is the application of the word to a specific group of people not just a fancy speech. 
When the preacher is a true pastor, there is ethos and logos and pathos. This is the life that Paul lived for two years in Ephesus. This is the ministry that Paul had for two years. And so he had an effective ministry that was going to continue in the life of these young men because he lived with them. He ministered among them. He, his ministry was one of character that, that provided an example, and he diligently taught them the word day in and day out. Paul was a discipler. And we, we will see it lived out in the lives of these young men in such a way that it impacts all of Asia Minor. The call for us is that we have that same kind of example. That we have that same kind of lifestyle of teaching. That, that we influence others so that they can in turn influence others yet again. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul writes to one of his protégés. Timothy, and he says, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is giving his parting words to a group of men that he had prepared, that he had taught, that he had lived a life before. And just like Paul, you and I can have an effective ministry that continues in the lives of others whom we impact. Next week, we'll do part two of Paul's challenge to the Ephesian elders as we consider how this now gets, ought to get fleshed out in the lives of those that he's hearing. What is the challenge that he specifically gives to that group of men? And we'll see even more specifically how he challenges them to impact others through the example of a teaching ministry that he has given. But be reminded, your ministry can be effective as it continues in others whom you have impacted. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons from it. We thank you even for the ongoing effect of the ministry of others in our lives that has continued down through the generation. Challenge our hearts to be disciplers of our children, to be disciplers of others who are in ministry, to be disciplers of one another. May we really weave into our hearts this notion that we, we ought to be leading others. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord and to continue to reflect on what we've learned in this passage of Scripture, even reminded of our theme for the year, to win one, to lead one, to follow one, to send one.